Hey, everybody. Thanksgiving is almost upon us here in America. This is a time when we sit down with friends and family, and we are thankful for the past year and celebrate by having a large dinner involving turkey and many different side dishes along with it. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking about alternatives to having the traditional turkey meal. You know, some have ham instead, some have turducken. So I thought this would be a perfect opportunity for us to replay an episode from May of 2020 in which we discussed broadening our definition of food with guest Pat Crowley. I'll just give you one hint. When I suggested this for my family dinner, all I heard were, enjoy. From Undisclosed Bunkers in Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that is part of the circle of life. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Broadening Our Definition of Food. Hey, Chad. How you doing, Michael? Doing well. So we got a special guest star today. What's going on with that? Yes, we're very happy to have Pat Crowley on the show. He's the uh, president of Chapool. Did I say that correctly? President Ch- or Chapool? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, founder. Chief of, band driver, I think it says Chief, on my uh, right. business card. But yeah, um, Chapul. Yeah. Thank you, Pat, for doing this with us today. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Sorry it took so long to pin me down. Well, <laughs> it only took a global pandemic for us to be able to carve out our schedules. <laughs> and anyway, this is an organization in which you think very creatively about food systems and how humans plug into those food systems and how we might have more efficient food systems. You've come and spoken in my class before, and I've, I'm really excited to chat with you a little bit about some of these ecological issues of nutrient cycling and energy flow in systems. Great. Yeah, so. yeah a company I started eight years ago was a food company for humans. We make edible food products out of cricket flour. And so we take crickets and we mill them down to protein powders. My background was in hydrology and water resource planning. And what I was trying to do is reverse engineer the supply chain of insects as a more water efficient form of protein, but it didn't make sense to build an insect farm when there wasn't a consumer demand. And so I was trying to launch a product to create a consumer demand that would create a pull through for the the supply chain, the farming, and see some of those more positive environmental benefits. And as the industry is progressing and as it's gaining momentum globally, there's a couple of other species that are really carrying the torch a lot more than crickets in terms of their ability to consume a wider variety of plant materials and more of those inedible categories of plant material. And at this point, we can scale insect agriculture faster and bigger than the human demand is. And it makes sense to do just from a disaster management perspective of can we get that waste back into the soil as quickly as possible? And so we're looking at scaling insect agriculture around the animal feeds, and particularly aquaculture. We're actually looking at a project here in Oregon now to take agricultural byproduct, feed that to this particular species called the soldier fly, and harvest it at its larva stage. And then that can go into aquaculture production to replace what one of the primary feed inputs is fish meal. So fish meal is basically harvested sea life, mostly anchovies and herring, things like that. But it takes about five pounds of ocean sea life to make one pound of fish meal to go into the feed for aquaculture production. But that can be replaced with 
insect larvae. Trout, for example, in nature, about 40% of their diet is insects. And so it would make sense if we're going to grow trout, why not feed them insects as, mm. as is their natural diet as opposed to ocean sea life that isn't a natural part of their diet and is very detrimental to the, the long-term health of our oceanic systems. Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very artificial source to be bringing a whole bunch of marine biomass and dumping it into, I guess, freshwater systems. Presumably the soldier flies represent a more terrestrial kind of originally plant-based and then insect sort of food. What kinds of local plants go into feeding the soldier flies? Yeah, we're looking at piloting it for a few, but hemp byproduct after the, the CBD extraction process, essentially a waste product at that point. For, Does that make the flies easier to catch because they're moving slower? And That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hold on, wait for the second one. Um, that were, they've been grown in academia on wine pumice. So grape skins is actually a pretty good source of feed for them hmm. as well. So hemp and wine, we're going to have the, the happiest bugs around. Yeah. Also, you know, almond hulls is a big one. Hazelnut hulls, potentially. God, how did they even get, that's like just a chunk of wood. How do they even I mean, break they could, that down? The enzymes in their gut bio. I mean, termites eat literally wood. Yeah. And there's moths that eat cotton. Yeah. And so it's, it's all their, because of their enzymes and their, their intestinal their bacteria flora. Yeah, exactly. And when we, if you really want to nerd out on it, you know, we're really diving into the developments at that microbiological level as well. And so we're finding host specific bacteria and fungi, meaning what naturally occur in their gut biota, and then applying that to the feed, isolate selecting out a couple of them that really accelerate the nitrogen fixation and the bioprocessing of cellulose and the degradation of cellulose to make that more bioavailable to the insect. And so we put it through this fermentation process with this natural fungi first and then feed it to the insects. And it's like, oh, okay. So it's, Mm. it's sort of like pre-digested a little bit. And then as the generations turn over from one to the next, they evolve uh, around the feeds that they're eating. And so we're having a generational turnover every two weeks. The larvae wow. just grow for two weeks and then the, the larva hatches into a fly. And, and this particular fly is good for agriculture in that it's considered non-pestiferous, meaning it, it doesn't have a mouth, this particular fly. And so it, it, it can't go and eat anything once it hatches into a fly. It only eats in its larval stage when it's on the ground. So it's, it's a nature's composter, really. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, and so we, we harvest it, and then every two weeks we have this generational turnover. And so, you know, with diet-based gene expression that we're just uncovering. And so hmm. it happens that quickly from one generation to the next. And so we can see that happening. In the course of a year, it's the equivalent of 70 human generations and so, you know, 400 years of human evolution yeah. in the course of one year. And so we can, hmm. we can have them evolve to eat specific feeds in waste streams around the planet, whether that's food waste, whether that's hemp, whether, whatever that is. And, and really food waste is the, the big elephant in the room. And here in the United States, there's 83 million tons of food waste every year. Tons, not pounds, 83 million. Hmm. And that's a massive contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and we can do something a lot smarter that we can turn it into economic opportunity yeah turn it's kind of a win-win so what happens to this stuff like the hemp stuff after the cbd is extracted or the the remains of the wine skins and stuff like that is that just composted or burned or yeah composted or i I probably shouldn't speak too much for the wine community in this area yeah or or just in maybe in general 
a lot of them haul it off of the vineyard after they make the wine it's removed and so whether that's composted or it goes to a special landfill whatever that is a lot of it does not go back into the soil but oh, you know, that's i assume they would turn a lot it back of them, into the soil a lot of them do especially biodynamic vineyards i'm sure that there's a higher level of that among the ones bringing that but mm. not all of them certainly mm-hmm. And I don't know what where that percentage mm-hmm. lies, but the hemp in particular, we're really excited about because the frass is what the insect manure is called, essentially. It's a natural antifungal. And so mm-hmm. the hemp industry really values frass as this biofertilizer. And so if we can take that waste from that industry and get it right back into those fields from whence the waste came, I mean, that's that's our, our goal for in terms of closing the loop. Yeah, hmm. that's cool. So I don't know, maybe we should set the stage a little bit and talk about ecosystems and energy flow in ecosystems and how we ought to be thinking about energy as it drives nutrient flow through those systems. In general, what energy is doing in these systems is taking simple versions of molecules and that energy results in those molecules being bound together into more complex and high energy versions. So like photosynthesis taking very low energy carbon dioxide. And the end result of that is sugar molecules, which themselves have a higher energy content and are more complex molecules. Examples in our own body would be perhaps using those sugar molecules to take more simple nitrogen containing compounds and assemble them into more complex amino acids and proteins that are used in the body. So that is basically the basis of all of agriculture, right? And so you're either eating plants or you're eating something that eats plants. Perhaps you're eating something that eats something that eats plants. So have I sort of fairly described what's happening in in an ecosystem in terms of energy flow and nutrient cycling? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. good description of it. And so what, what would you say are the... Uh, nutrients or maybe the atoms that we ought to be thinking about the most in this? Yeah, I think probably carbon and nitrogen are some of the most looming issues that we face. Carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus. Yeah, those are probably the main three. We're taking excess concentrations of them and reallocating them around the globe. It's a very detrimental and potentially irreversible effects. Carbon, concentrating that in the atmosphere and in nitrogen, concentrating that into our water systems. And both of those two elements contribute, I think, most importantly to biodiversity loss on the planet and those, these irreversible changes. So those are probably the main two to focus on. Okay. And can you make the link to biodiversity loss a little more explicit? I think the number one cause of biodiversity loss is actually habitat loss, and that's directly tied to agriculture. And that's one of the biggest cases for plant-based being more ecologically friendly than animal-based protein. But essentially, it's plant agriculture that is culprit of that loss. It's just whether we then feed those plants to animals and then eat those animals, or we eat the plants directly. But either way, it's the plant agriculture that's the culprit to that. And then the nitrogen runoff into our water bodies. I think when I was working in hydrology, I was a little more up to date on my stats, but at the time it was something like 70,000 water bodies in the U.S. alone are polluted with excess nitrogen. And what that does is create algal blooms and then you have eutrophication and then decrease mm-hmm. of oxygen and that you just have mass die-offs in our water bodies and it creates there's something like 400 dead zones around the planet. So you have... Yeah 
biodiversity loss in our oceans, nitrogen is a direct culprit of that. This nitrogen is all coming from fertilizer. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Most of it, over half is from a synthetic fertilizer. And then the others are manure and, and other forms of organic fertilizers. So farmers are putting on effectively nitrogen onto their crops? Correct. Yep. Is it running off because there is a surplus that's being put on or yeah, like there's too much for the system to take in? And so that surplus gets pushed out? Yeah, I mean, nitrogen has to be in an available form to plants. It has to be fixed. And so we, we put on a fixed version of that, but not all of what we put on is actually fixed. And then the nitrogen use efficiency is the primary metric we use. And it's globally, it's, it's less than 50%. More than half of it that we put on runs off. And overall, agriculture is becoming more resource efficient as we go on. But that's one of the metrics that's actually becoming more inefficient is our nitrogen efficiency. And that's probably due to the cost of the access going down and relatively no negative repercussions for the excess of it. I mean, there are negative ecological consequences, but... Externalized ecological. Right, yeah, yeah. Not direct consequence to the farmer or the consumer. Right. Because for a farmer... It's better to put on too much and have a little runoff than yeah. not enough and just not make crops. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I, th- I think this link to eutrophication is also an interesting one that the first thing that people might think is, oh, there's a little bit of extra nitrogen in the water now, and that's a really good thing for plants. And so maybe that would actually make things grow better in the water. So can you help us kind of link to how that actually leads to the depletion of oxygen availability in the water? It's all about balance. And so when you have excess, then you have these big algal blooms. So you have these big blooms of algae. And then when those die, they consume the oxygen in the water because of their decomposition. So it must be the bacteria that are breaking down. Correct. Yep. Anaerobic decomposition. Yep. Yeah. There's just some great visuals that you can see from the Mississippi Delta, the nitrogen from ag in the middle of the country just going in to create these dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. And Hmm. I mean, it's just staggering to see how widespread it is. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing how far out it reaches. And I think you were talking about habitat loss driving biodiversity loss. And I think that for the average United States citizen, that's sort of an unfamiliar thing to think about. Because like when we're driving around in the countryside here, we see the crop fields and the various orchards and things like that. And they've pretty much always been that way. And you know, maybe there's some, there's a hazelnut orchard that's been converted to a vineyard or something like that, but that's sort of like one crop for another. What I think that a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with in this country is the scale of the destruction of primary forest habitat and the conversion of that to agricultural land, which is directly contributing to this loss of habitat. I mean, we're talking like places in the tropics here, right? Yeah, you look at Brazil, the Amazon rainforest. I wish I had that those stats off the top of my head, but there are stats that you hear, and when you hear it, like the acreage per day, it's like, that's impossible. Is there even that much forest, but it, they're staggering how much we're clear-cutting on our today's time scale. And it's it's mostly for soya production. It's the vast majority of what we're clear-cutting you know, the Amazonian rainforest for. Yeah. And then what does the majority of that soya go on to do? What's the fate of that? Either animal feed or human yeah. food. Yeah, both. Probably mostly for export. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it comes directly to the United States. Yeah. It's in the plant-based burger from Impossible Burger. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. not a demonless uh, <laughs> endeavor necessarily. Yeah. 
So that's the plant side of things. Does that feed into what our story is today at all? Or When I drive to like associating some of these repercussions with plant-based agriculture, it's more to highlight that the conversation isn't this like plants will get us to sustainability. It's more to shed light on. It's not that simple. It's not just shifting over from plants to animals. It's really more of a systemic circularity that we need to have in systems integration, you know, focus on biodiversity, both on the planet, but within our agricultural systems as well, because it's that concentration of resources and it's the industrialized kind of monoculture that requires these massive inputs. It's really the culprit for a lot of the other concentrations of nitrogen and carbon. And so what we're trying to do is implement a little bit more biodiversity and add a trophic layer into some of our global food production where there wasn't one prior. And so create a little bit more circularity in our food system. Yeah, you've said circularity a couple of times and it seems to imply that maybe what we have right now is more linear is that maybe compare those two this is globally speaking of course but when we look at our agriculture is add inputs and then there's outputs that they're externalized or they're valorized and so we take monoculture for example and we we take you know the edible part of that and there's a value for that but the the average harvest index or plant agriculture is about 50%, meaning of what we harvest, only 50% of that is edible at most. So the other inedible is just externality. And so that ends up in landfills predominantly. So by edible and inedible, you're talking about the actual fruit, the stuff that corn, we can only eat the the cob and then you've got the stem, you got the leaves, you got all this other stuff that... That's right. And so that's what you're saying is getting thrown away. You eat the whole cob? That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just eat the corn grains right off of the cob. That's really... That's right. Well, you're missing out. <laughs> okay. You have to cook it a long time. Okay. No, I, I take your point though. Like, especially something like corn. I mean, that's a tall plant and that the cob itself is pretty dense and there's just like a little skiff of grain on the top of that cob. So there's, there's a lot of plant biomass there that's just going somewhere. Yeah, it's going mostly to landfills or, you know, best case scenario, like I said, compost. But even if it's composted, compost produces a significant amount of methane, thereby moving that carbon back into the atmosphere. So what we're proposing to do is through insects, you feed that inedible biomass into insects, and then you have 70% less CO2 production than if you were to compost it. And so mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is get that carbon back in the soil. And so if you feed that inedible bio waste to insects, then they're frass, you can get it back into the soil without all the atmospheric pollutants. And then your byproduct, your produce is the larva of these insect farms that can be consumed and they're creating, as, as Chad was referencing earlier, more complex nutrients that are now available and now make them become edible either to human beings or to fish or to chickens, etc. That's just highlighting the amount of plant material that we are harvesting that's inedible to us. But then if you look at the edible plant matter, we waste 30 to 40% of what is actually edible. Here in the United States, it's split pretty evenly in thirds of at the agricultural level, you know, the ugly fruit doesn't make it to market and that just gets discarded. And then at retail and at restaurants, a lot of that gets discarded if it doesn't sell in time. And then in our homes, that's the culprit for the other third is the amount of food we throw away. And so all of that food is we're trying to 
address some of the largest culprits. And if you look at what happens in a natural ecosystem, what happens to that inedible plant matter? Well, it falls on the ground and then insects and fungus and bacteria start bioprocessing that and then converting it into the soil. And so we're just trying to replicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, when you dive into insects, it's really the power and the beauty of them is in into their ecosystems of microbes inside hmm. of their intestinal tract because they're bacteria that fix nitrogen and enzymes that help break nutrients down and make nutrients more available to plants. And it, it works in a natural ecosystem. So let's, how can yeah. we make our agricultural system more replicable of that? And so... Y- That's where you're talking about, you mentioned a little bit ago, inserting another trophic level. Yeah. What does trophic level mean? A trophic level is a way of conceptualizing who is eating whom. And if we're thinking about a very simple kind of food web, the very first trophic level would be the primary producers. So we're talking usually about plants. And then the second trophic level would be the things that eat the first trophic level. So like your grazers, your herbivores, and then the third would be the things that eat the things that eat the plants. And so what it seems like you're saying is that there is a lot of still available biomass that rather than just letting it decompose due mostly to like fungi and bacteria, if you could rear another animal on that stuff, now you've got some actual animal biomass derived from what previously had just been plant waste. That's right. And the one piece that's different is that you said kind of rather than letting bacteria and, and fungi bioprocess, that's in an optimal ecosystem that's very diverse. Our agricultural landscapes do not represent that. And so we have a massive die-off of the kind of microbiology in our nation's soils. And so and same with insects. You know, we, we don't have that biodiversity to bioprocess that. And so it, it turns out that most of that will go through an anaerobic decomposition process. And so that emits even more greenhouse gas emissions. So wait, could we go through some of this a little bit? So sure. Yeah. You're saying that fungi and, and bacteria were doing all the breaking down, but then it sounded like that's not even the case that most of the time it's well, they're just yeah. breaking over time or? Oh, I, I was speaking kind of this natural ecosystem, a very biodiverse ecosystem. Okay. Plant material falls down, this organic material, and then it's bioprocessed by fungi and insects and bacteria, and then it becomes healthy soil. Yeah. And what we've done is, so now picture, we've clear cut that system and we've added a very monoculture style of agriculture. It's not biodiverse. And because we're losing that plant material that comes down, we take it away, then we have to put in those external nitrogen inputs because the soil doesn't have the nutrients and it also is devoid of that life. So if plant matter, if it does, if it falls to the ground, it's not going to be bioprocessed. And so we remove it and send it to landfills that also are not prolific with bacteria and fungi, et cetera. Well, that's, I've always assumed that landfills were just teeming with bacteria and things like that. Well, yeah, it's like... All that stuff sort of just gets compressed down and doesn't have access to fresh air. And so it goes anaerobic, right? That's right. It does have bacteria, but it has it doesn't have the oxygen. So in that compression, you don't have the oxygen that the good bacteria, the good microbes rely on for digestion. Let the record reflect that there were air quotes around good. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we've talked on the show before, Chad, that aerobic is just more efficient. You get more energy. Presumably, they're just more active doing aerobic and anaerobic would take longer and have 
extra byproducts and things. Yeah. What are the uh, outputs from anaerobic? Are they, are they making methane or something like that? Yep. And methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas. That's right. Yep. Than CO2. Okay. Estimates vary widely. That's a hard thing to compute, but anywhere from like 20, I've seen up to like 80 times more potent than a greenhouse gas. Okay. So, so you were saying that if we had a very diverse ecosystem, then plants would drop their waste basically, and then something would be there to, to munch on that. Yep. And its waste would then maybe be munched on by something else. So when we started talking today, we were talking about sort of going up the chain only, right? We were talking about that plants and then an herbivore and then the carnivore maybe eats the herbivore. But then you're saying, well, there's also a lot of other stuff that could be consumed along the way. And in a good diverse population, then you're saying that that is possible, but that our farming system at the moment is not doing that. It feels like I put a lot of words in your mouth. and I. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the monoculture nature of our agriculture kind of cuts down on the type of different kinds of organisms that make use of that. And there's a, you can have this reliance on evolution and these ecosystems have evolved to synergistically do that in tandem and as a, as a group and the, the bacteria perform one function and the fungi another and they synergistic kind of decomposition, if you will. But as we lose that life, we've tried to mechanize a lot of those processes. And so, you know, we have to remove physically and mechanically remove that plant matter and then mechanically input these synthetic nitrogen inputs and carbon inputs, et cetera. Right. And so once we've lost that natural biodiversity that's evolved to perform these functions, then it's, it's up to us to do it in, in a far less efficient way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about like a nitrogen atom in just a just a, just a natural plant community, right? And if you're a nitrogen atom that's a, tied up in some plant material and that leaf drops off and it degrades and gets broken down by bacteria and then the next season that same nitrogen atom sort of gets taken up by the plant again and maybe this year it gets eaten by a caterpillar and now it's part of the caterpillar's body and then that caterpillar gets eaten by a bird and the bird poops in the field and so like there's a lot more diverse pathways that those atoms are kind of cycling around. But when we annually haul all of that plant biomass away, suddenly it's not there. And so we've got to try to artificially replace those missing elements. And there's no possible way we can sort of do it in a precise enough way that we can totally duplicate what had been happening and how the different kinds of organisms there had evolved with each other in that context. It is certainly true that in a naturally functioning system, nothing goes to waste, right? Life is very opportunistic. Yeah. So it evolves to to consume the calories that are available to it and it'll make use of, of whatever is available. Even yeah. though it, it may not be the most optimal for one species versus another, but it's the opportunity in hand. Yeah. If you just think about the flies that show up within minutes to a cow patty, right? That stuff coming out the back end of the cow, the cow is completely done with it. There's nothing more to be extracted from that biomass and from that cow, but from the flies and the other insects that show up, it's like bonanza, right? This is just the perfect right stuff for them. And now that stuff is being converted into more animal biomass that some other animal might consume. 
So your company right now is is using insects to make more fertilizer for some crops, and it's using insects to make feed for trout farms and things like that. That's what we're proposing to do. We're trying to build that here in in Oregon. Yeah, so that Hmm. rather than so much of the biomass either getting carted away, never to be seen again, or being combusted off into the air. Yep. So pie in the sky, big dreams. How much more could this go? I mean, could you imagine feeding other things up the food chain or? Yeah. Behind the sky, you have one of these in every city and it eats all of the organic waste coming out of that city. And we're actually a part of a couple of projects to do that. There's a project in the Middle East that's trying to create a a zero waste, green energy, zero carbon emission city of a million people and grow all of its own food on site. And so we're a part of trying to scope out all of the organic material going to insects for fish feed and keeping that all internal. But I think that's kind of the model is, is it you know viable and essential in these utopian models, but you can also retrofit insect agriculture onto our current system. Pie in the sky is, is that beast in the room of food waste. Can we feed the food waste to insects? And then you know, certainly they can go into human grade food products. And that's the most efficient way of addressing a protein gap, but they also can go into aquaculture feed and they can also feed our chickens in our backyards. And I haven't gotten a firm number on this, but we import something like you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of dried mealworms from China every year or backyard chickens. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so in addition to maybe growing a little bit of your own and cutting down on your own food waste, short of starting your own company to insert a new trophic level into the food system, what else can the average person do? Well, you start eating insects. That's you go all the way. You start okay. consuming them yourself. Do you have yeah. any good recipes? We have a bunch on our website. I'm mostly kind of a mix it all together type person. So I, I'm mostly consuming smoothies, just power through my nutrients in the morning. Okay. But there's, yeah, we have some baking recipes uh, on the website as well. Yeah, I, I had to really gear myself up for this because normally when we have a guest who's talking about food or wine or whatever, they, they bring in some samples for us to, to taste. And I was like, then when we got quarantined, I was like, well, that's a silver lining too. I, I won't. Have- <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but fair. I was ready to. I was that's ready. Fair. For- yeah. Well, well it, it's scary. It's scary. And that's perfectly <laughs> normal. But uh, I, I, the other piece, I mean, I just went to the far go big, but another huge one is just eating more locally. Be aware of where your food's being produced. And what were the inputs? And you, if it's being grown locally, it, at least it's not coming from halfway around the world at the very least. And, and, I do have to say, whenever people sort of like speak poorly of eating insects, I like to remind people, it's like, if you're eating shrimp, right, and lobster, then I feel like you shouldn't have any sort of barrier to eating insects. Yeah. There's an anecdote from the go shoot in Utah where they regularly consumed grasshoppers and crickets. And when, when shrimp were brought into that region, that's how they convinced them to try them. They said, well... They're kind of like grasshoppers of the sea. (laughs) (laughs) Just land shrimp. Yeah, right. Excellent. Well, thank you, Pat, for talking with us today. Yeah, no problem. No problem. That was fun. This episode was recorded in our bunkers again. Our theme music was written by Rodi Ortega. If you like this episode or others like it, subscribe to the podcast, and then you will download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, you should leave a comment and a rating. That'll help other people find our podcast. Like us on Facebook. And from there, you can actually write us in questions and we can try to answer your questions in a future episode. Or if you have ideas for other guests that we might want to have on the show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.